You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This week, step back 300 years in time with us to meet a man who was both a friend of royalty and a murderer. A man who, over a short life, journeyed from aristocracy and riches to destitute poverty, laughingstock, and fugitive. Come with us and meet a man whose decisions led to the rise of Napoleon, and a man who single-handedly destroyed the French middle class, and whose actions helped to make the guillotine the French executioner's weapon of choice. Oh, and by the way, come with us and meet a man who along the way also laid the foundations of the modern-day central banking system. Here you've got this guy who reinvented himself a couple of times and in prison was going to be hanged, but got loose and, and, and had these ideas that they say, oh man, so much of our central banking theology is, is based on these ideas that he came up with around the time of, of, of Louis the freaking 14th. This week on Adventures in Finance, come with us on a journey back in time to 18th century France as we meet John Law, the godfather of central banking. Also, coming up in this week's episode, we have our long, short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and the not-so-good stories of the week. Grant, I am long the Chinese yuan versus the Korean yuan. And I am long because, well, it, it, it kind of, it starts with a technical chart, actually. Uh, my short in initial coin offerings, my potential short in Tesla, were crushed by the, uh, by the Honorable Chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. And in a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made, and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom they derived from that experience. Yeah, this week we got an Aussie on the show, Michael Schneider, the former CIO and co-founder of Brookline Partners uh, and current independent portfolio manager down in Melbourne, Australia. And Michael discusses something he got wrong assessing the bond market in 2009. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is June 29th, 2017, and welcome to episode 22 of Adventures in Finance, or I think as Drake or Chris Brown called deuces. Yeah, see, I'm just thinking bingo callers and two little ducks, 22. What's that? Yeah, well, this is, this is a generational uh, <laughs> chasm here. You're talking about Drake, and I'm talking about ducks, but we're worlds apart here, my well, friend. Speaking worlds of apart. chasms, between us is our producer, James. James, how are you? I'm just laughing at, at uh, Grant exposing just how old he really is. <laughs> well, you got a couple of years younger with that new haircut you got. I, I mean, it was obviously this is a an audio podcast, so people can't see the haircut. But you got you got a nice millennial haircut. If you James. tweet a photograph of me before and after, I just don't know how I'm going to react to that. I think I just might. Maybe I'll even put up a survey. There, there must be some meme involving Muppets out there somewhere that we could just take that photo. <laughs> just remember who's in control here, guys. 
That's a good point. Actually. True, that true. Point. I don't want to sound like a squirrel. Well, guys, let's move on to our first segment called Long Short, where Grant and I go through the good and not so good stories of the week. Now, Grant, and I, I see the look on your face. I know you're raring to go this week. So I, I believe the phrase I used was embarrassment of riches. This oh, week. chomping at the bit. So why don't you, know, you go first? I, well, I had, I had so many things, <laughs> uh, all of which have been torpedoed by something I'm going to get to when I get to my shorts in a second. Um, you know, I was, I was going to be long forward versus Tesla. I saw a, a piece um, published by one of the Twitter, fa- the uh, Tesla fanboys talking about the hidden features in the new Model 3, <laughs> one of which was coat hooks and a leather interior. Um, and I saw that there is actually something called the Tesla aftermarket coat hooks community. Um, That's got to be a joke. No, seriously, it's a real thing. And, and I was looking at something that Jonathan Tepper of Variant Perception posted on Twitter. You know, Jonathan's a great guy to follow. Great follow, yeah. Yeah, uh, and he put a, a stat up saying that Ford... The, the, the Ford share price values each car they produce at $7,000. The Tesla share price values every car they've sold at $800,000. <laughs> and as Jonathan said, you know, let that sink in for a minute. In 2016, Tesla sold 76,230 vehicles. Ford sold 820,000 F-150 trucks. And yet the market caps, Ford's worth $44 billion. Yeah. Tesla's worth 62. I, so I was going to do a whole Ford long Tesla short thing, but I don't want to upset the uh, Teslarians well, again. The, but the streaming music thing would have been a pretty good I short. Know, that I, is I, just... Look, as somebody else wrote, Charlie Grant, I think on Twitter, finally I can listen to music in my car. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, it's just laughable. <laughs> but my long this week, um, I'm going with gold. It's been a while coming. Really? Yeah, I know. Surprise, uh, surprise. People, they're wondering why it's taking so long. But you know, we had another one of those fat fingers this week. Um, and somebody sold two and a quarter billion dollars of gold notional in a minute in the futures market. Um, and not only did the price recover, uh, but it moved the needle 0.92 of a percent. And there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in gold from a technical standpoint. And it just feels to me like gold may be finding a bottom here. And, you know, everywhere I look, I see bubbles. Everywhere I look, I see bubbles, uh, whether it's fang stocks, technology, whether it's Tesla, whether it's Amazon. There's so many bubbles everywhere. And the one thing I found that demonstrably is not in a bubble is gold. So I am long gold this week, finally. Yeah, you won't find any disagreement here, Grant. Um, Let me move on to my long for the week. And Grant, I am long the Chinese yuan versus the Korean yuan. All right, okay. And I am long because, well, it it, it kind of, it starts with a technical chart, actually. If you look at the uh, the cross-currency pair, it kind of trades in this nice 160 to 190 uh, point range. Um, And if you look at where the Chinese yuan is, right now, this is an offshore one we're talking about, obviously. Um, and then you, you think about the unwinding of the commodity complex, you think about the unwinding of the, of the reflationary trade, and all the money that's poured into EM. I think eventually we're going to see a turn in that and maybe see, hope, I don't know, maybe see the Chinese one trade up uh, into the top of that range. So I don't know, just on like a technical basis, I just kind of want to put, put that out there as a long. That right, kind of interesting. With, the, with the yuan peg with the dollar, you don't want to just be long dollar versus one instead, or are you... Yeah, potentially. I mean, China's actually done an incredible job of closing its capital accounts um, in 2016. So, I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's a pure expression. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Well, I don't have nothing against that in principle, um, but I do want to get to my shorts. Oh, boy. Yeah, my initial short was going to be something called coinlaunch.com, which is a platform that allows you to launch your own uh, your own initial coin <laughs> offering. I mean, I mean yeah. Things are getting so ridiculous now that the the warning that they put on this is that early investors in the operation are usually motivated to buy the crypto coins in the hope that the plan becomes successful after it launches, which could translate to a higher value than what they purchased it for before the project was initiated. Yeah, the fact that 
you can now anyone can launch their own initial coin offering. Right. You know, there are signs of bubbles and there are signs of bubbles, and this is this is one of them. But I have to say, literally hot off the presses in the last <laughs> few minutes, as we were about to record this podcast, uh, my short in initial coin offerings, my potential short in Tesla were crushed by the uh, by the honourable chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, who uh, speaking wherever the hell she's speaking, I've no idea. My mind. Said um, that she doesn't expect there to be any more crises in our lifetimes. Now, guys, you can if you're driving right now, or if you're <laughs> running on a treadmill, just make sure you stop whatever you're doing because. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you're going to take the chair of the Federal Reserve after Ben Bernanke and all the subprime is contained, you know we've never had a nationwide decline in house prices. All the things he said, I mean, just Google it. You'll find a list of thirty or forty things he said that proved to be so utterly ridiculous as to be laughable. Why on earth would you say these things in public? I mean, what is wrong with someone who would say that in public? I, you know what? I, you know, I don't want to jump the gun here, but I think when we... Well, jump the gun in, in, in relation to our feature for today is that I think the central bankers are liable to a certain level of hubris. Um, or I don't know if it's hubris. Maybe they just... Well, lack yeah, of self-awareness. I, yeah, I thought like, that maybe, but uh, it, it's just stupidity. You don't say these things out loud. You don't say them in public. And you don't say them when every single word you say is going to be quoted back to you and put in the history books yeah. forever. It's, it's just it's beyond my comprehension. To me, the previous holder of this title was Bernanke's assertion that he had 100% confidence that he could control inflation, which is, I remember that. again, just a ludicrous thing to say. Uh, but this one, oh boy, I mean... Good luck, Janet, because this, these words are going to haunt you for the rest of your life. Well, the good thing for us is that if we ever decided to make like an intro collage with all the things that <laughs> yeah, the central bankers right. have said, you know, we've, we can add another one to that, to that list. But yeah, Grant, I mean, it, it's such a... I, I couldn't believe it either. I mean, I was sitting and having lunch and you're like, did you just hear what Janet Yellen said? And kind of my, my jaw dropped to the ground because how do you say something like this? Make such a categorical statement where you literally have 100% probability of being wrong. Yep. I mean, well, look, I, now I'm saying 100%. <laughs> uh, so, you know, don't want to make the same mistake, but it, it just, it boggles the mind. Listen, I, I, you, I'm not going to put you as my short next week for saying that. I have a lot more confidence in what you just said than what she just said, but it, it's just, it's remarkable. Yeah, it I is. Another, no other word for it. Well, anyway. let's, uh, you know, I'll finish off with my short for the week, and I am short Mark Zuckerberg. And okay. he's been going around the country on his, you know. Zuck tour. Zuck tour. And there was a there was a, a screenshot that popped up, a Snapchat screenshot that popped up of him taking a picture of I don't know it was like a potato, like some kind of potato grilled potato thing. It's like yeah, Iowa is my kind of place, and he's just playing off this like you know folksy kind of preparing. I mean he's he's preparing for a, a run at the presidency. Yeah, this is Zuckerberg twenty twenty. Oh my god! And there's nothing that these guys do that is non intentional. Yeah, you know. So I don't know. It's just I. I Obviously, in the circles that I that I follow and that I occupy on, on Twitter, a lot of scorn, a lot of um, you know, and I think it's it's justified uh, hurled towards this. But I still think that most people are gonna, you know, take it hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, look, it's, it's particularly you know, when you look at the election result in the UK and the the surge in uh, young people that voted for Jeremy Corbyn. Um, this idea that that, uh, that that the younger generation are getting politically engaged. Um, ordinarily would be a great thing however uh their susceptibility to stunts like that and uh their willingness to vote for ideals rather than practical solutions to things i suspect president zuckerberg is a lot more likely than uh, no 
crises in oh, the rest God. of our lifetimes. I don't even want to think about that. Well, I mean, one thing that maybe people aren't aware of is that he's actually engaged right now in a pretty heated battle in Hawaii over his property. So he, I think about like a 640 acre, you know, plot of land and, and he's actually fighting with the locals about a fence that he's building. So, yeah, I mean, if, you know, if uh, it's not one way to ingratiate yourself to the locals by building a giant fence. Mr. Around. Zuckerberg, tear down that fence. Right, exactly. <laughs> Well, Grant, let's move on to our documentary feature for the week. And this week, it'll be part two of our ongoing financial history series. And we're going to pay a visit and actually time travel a little bit to early 18th century France and dive into the life, work, and times of the father of modern central banking. Yes, I have written extensively about this gentleman. Uh, He was a Scot, he was a gambler, he was a murderer, uh, and he was a central banker. And his name was John Law. Let us not, in the pride of our superior knowledge, turn with contempt from the follies of our predecessors. The story of the errors into which great minds have fallen in the pursuit of truth can never be uninstructive. As the man looks back to the days of his childhood and his youth, and recalls to his mind the strange notions and false opinions that swayed his actions at the time, that he may wonder at them. So should society, for its edification, look back to the opinions which govern ages that fled. Charles Mackay. All right, so Grant, let's start with a brief history of John Law. I know we could probably do a much longer segment of this, but let's keep it short and give the listeners the Coles notes. So he was born in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1671 to a family of goldsmiths and bankers. Well, uh, you know, we can probably think of another recent masterful central banker who was rooted in gold, but then eventually lost his way. Uh, but he began learning about the banking industry at the age of 14. He started by counting gold coins with his father And unfortunately, upon the death of his father in 1688, he set out to London. Yes, where this uh, young, handsome, smart and relatively wealthy 18-year-old found uh, a natural home. He became a prolific gambler. He lost and won huge sums of money um, and wormed his way into the social elite of the time, which uh, was a precursor to later times in his life. He found himself embroiled in a love affair and was challenged to a duel, as was the way back then. Uh, and during the duel, he shot his opponent dead and was sentenced to death for murder, which was eventually uh, commuted to manslaughter. As if that wasn't enough, he eventually escaped prison. And then for the next 14 years, he traveled to and lived in several countries across the European continent. When While abroad, he sustained himself through, you guessed it, gambling, and was even banned in certain cities for being a danger to the youth. You know, Grant, I think they knew something back then about not cozying up to central bankers. <laughs> Anyways... During his time while traveling Europe, he spent time studying currencies and monetary policy, and he eventually settled in Paris. And once he settled in Paris, he was nearly kicked out of the city for getting into trouble with the police chief. Uh, But that expulsion was actually stayed because, quite fortuitously, through his association with the high society of Paris at the time, he'd fallen into the good graces of several French princes and dukes, one of whom, the Duke d'Orléans, would later alter Law's life the country, and the world forever. Now fast forward to September 1st, 1715. This is when King Louis XIV, he died. And just like markets go from greed to fear in a split second, unparalleled adulation turned into scorn. Statues were torn down and his memory was desecrated by the seething populace. And for good reason. Yeah, at the time, France's finances were in utter shambles. The treasury was empty following the war of the Spanish succession. The national debt was crippling, with the nation owing 21 times its tax receipts. Uh, And 80% of those tax receipts were being used just to cover the interest on the national debt. 
Is this story sounding familiar yet, I wonder? Now, the heir apparent at the time, Louis XV, was only five years old when his father died. And so the Duke of Orléans, uh, our friend John Law's good buddy, uh, and the Louis XV's great uncle, took over as Prince Regent until the young boy could ascend the throne. And it was in this perfect storm of economic turmoil and monarchical transition that John Law had his date with destiny. And at this point, John Law was already renowned as one of the world's foremost monetary theorists and one of the greatest economists of his time. And so the regent turned to his friend for advice. Just think about that for a second, Aaron. Here's a guy (laughs) who basically had been wandering around Europe reading about monetary policy. That was enough for him to be considered one of the world's foremost monetary theorists and greatest economists of his time. Now, no lesser economic mind than Joseph Schumpeter said those words about, uh, about law after the fact. And when you hear the rest of the story, the fact that anyone could say this after the fact just explains how entrenched some of these theories can be. Well, you know, I know him uh, through uh, Janet Gleason wrote a biography called Millionaire, which was uh, a pretty straightforward, I think a really good biography. I'd, I'd never heard of John Law before that. That's Dr. Ben Hunt, chief investment strategist of Salient Partners, author of the widely read Epsilon Theory blog, and a former professor of political science at NYU and SMU. Here you've got this this guy, you know, who reinvented himself a couple of times and was this in prison was going to be hanged, but got loose and, and, and had these ideas that when you think about their application today, you say, oh, man, so much of our central banking theology, and I, and I use that word advisedly, is based on these ideas that he came up with around the time of, of, of Louis the freaking 14th. And here was John Law's coup de grace to alleviate France's economic woes. So here was the, the idea that John Law had, and, it, and it's based on this concept called uh, uh, real bills. All right, the, and, and so, so what does that mean? And, and what it means is, is, is pretty much this. Look, you're a bank, and so long as you're taking in essentially risk-free assets like gold or silver and you're discounting on that, you should issue as much paper money as the public wants to take. Right, you should, and, and 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 you're better off doing the paper money than the gold coins, because you know there's not a lot of gold going around right now in France. But then if you take that idea a little bit farther, you say, well, all right, yeah, gold and silver, we should be able to, you know, issue notes, print money on that. That makes sense. But you know, land is pretty risk-free too. Let's issue some paper money on land. You know, if you want to present that. And from there, it's a pretty small step, and this was the, the core idea behind this private bank, Banque Générale, that became the National Bank of France. Well, what about government bonds? Right? Why, why shouldn't we take that as essentially a risk-free asset? Right? The government's not going anywhere. Right? This is <laughs> well before you know, 1789 and uh, Louis XVI. So why don't we accept that and print money on the basis of that, too, issue notes. And so that was John Law's core idea, right? And that was, I think, entirely successful, and it's entirely the basis of what we have in our monetary banking system today. So what you ended up with in the Banque Generale was they capitalized it with, you know, one-fourth of the assets was actually coinage, you know, the gold and silver, but then three-fourths of the assets of the capitalization, the initial capitalization, were government bonds, which you could say were worthless, 
Or you could say if you're John Law and saying you've got to believe, which is the same thing you've had in central banks today, no, it's money good. Yeah, I'd just, just like to uh, interject here for anybody listening that came in halfway through. We are actually talking about something that happened 300 years ago <laughs> and not last week. Yeah. And that's one of the incredible things as we read about these stories. And at least for me, Grant, the first time I come, I, I start reading about monetary history, I have to sometimes like write on the side with these annotations like, wait, this is like this, you know, or I remember reading this really small book. And I may, I've probably talked about this before in the podcast, uh, Fiat Inflation in France, written by Andrew Dixon White. Yeah, if they wrote it today, it'd be a much bigger book. Oh, yes, it would be. Um, but, you know, on the side, when he talks about society and culture, were you expecting a laugh? It was an inflation joke. Uh, Come on. Ah, uh, yes. I'm here all week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, as I'm reading this book, I can't help but write on the margins like, oh, this is, this is Kim Kardashian, you know? You know, Napoleon sounds like Donald Trump. I just, you know, it's really... Look, we, we, you, we've, we've used this quote so many times in this podcast. I've used it so many times in my writing. This idea that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. It, yeah, it's so true. We're human beings. We are cyclical creatures. You know, the circle of life, to, to use Elton John's great phrase, um, it's so true. Everything is cyclical. The mistakes we're making today, we've made before. You just have to give them long enough for people to forget and enough people who haven't read history to, to become... Uh, stewards of these things, and hey, presto, here we are again. Right, and we're going to get back to the history um, and back to what Dr. Ben Hunt said, which is the government bonds had to be money good, and, and it had to be money good because the French government was desperate to pay off the mountain ranges of debt. Um, the idea was first to establish a private central bank, the Banque Générale Privée, which is um, Dr. Ben Hunt mentioned, and they took gold coin deposits from the public in exchange for a paper currency, Yes, and that was paper currency, which was decreed to be the only acceptable method of payment for taxes uh, or legal tender. You know, Law's idea was that he would issue shares in the new bank and then use the proceeds of that share sale to buy back and retire the country's debt outstanding. But there was one problem. How do you bid up government bonds without the price going up? Ah, you see, now this is the genius of the whole thing. And Law came up with just a fantastic idea. He decreed that the only payment acceptable for shares in the Banque Générale Privée were, you've guessed it, government bonds. Absolutely brilliant. And this was the first major pillar of John Law's plan, or scheme, you can call it. And to his credit, it actually succeeded in reanimating the French people and kick-started the economy. That absolutely worked. And it got them out of this deflationary trap where they were, were able to issue more money, to print more money, then they actually had gold coins for it. And this whole notion of, yeah, government bonds, that's a risk-free asset that we should be able to own and print money on the basis of. And it worked incredibly well, so well that one year into the scheme, the paper money would trade at a 15% premium to the comparable amount of gold coin. But then, like, like all good things, you always take it a step too far, right? And so what John Law said was, well, you know, all right, we, we've gotten out of this, you know, the depths of deflation here, and we're printing this money, and it seems to be working pretty well. It's stimulating real economic activity. But you know what? We've still got this huge national debt, and I'm John Law. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a gambler at heart. He really was. What about a trade monopoly? Isn't that money good, too? Yes, and this was the second pillar of John Law's crazy scheme, uh, he persuaded the Prince Regent to grant him a royal charter to explore and exploit the riches of the American territory of Louisiana, which was named after 
Of course. Louis. <laughs> so you see where this is going, right? And, and so you, you move from, well, gold and silver to land to government bonds. You know, here in the U.S., we've moved to mortgage-backed securities, right? That that's kind of money good, at least the, for the, the Fed purchases and the, the Fannie and Freddie uh, backstop that the government has. Well, what about uh, owning, you know, ETFs, right? <laughs> like, or, or the Swiss National Bank? Well, let's own Apple. Isn't that money good? Sure it is. Well, that was the same thing that John Law did, but he kind of even went one step farther than that, which is that he created the company that they were issuing the shares and then printing the money off of. That must have every modern central banker you know, seething with envy because, I mean, not only do they print the money, but you can actually create the company upon which you're going to securitize and capitalize. I mean, well, if- you could. I mean, it worked for John Law. This is the problem, right? They haven't they haven't quite gone this far. When we talk about extreme monetary policy today, yeah, you know, you got nothing on John Law. In early 1719, yeah, you know, he launched the Mississippi Company and issued shares to just a massive demand from the public. The first IPO, uh, they sold 50,000 shares at 500 livres each. Uh, and of course, as all good uh, capitalists, it was a, it was an instalment system. You had to put seventy five uh, livre down immediately, and then you paid the rest in instalments over nineteen months. And the IPO was oversubscribed six times. And before the second instalment was due, the price had doubled. So you can probably guess what happened. Right. And then Law decided on a secondary offering of three hundred thousand shares at five hundred livres to be paid in ten instalments. But what actually lay beneath this groundswell or fervent demand from the people? People want to believe. People want to believe. I, I know in kind of our business of punditry, it pays to be the you know the voice of doom, right? But gosh, you know, people they want to believe. And and what John Law was was really good at doing was creating this amazing narrative or story around Louisiana and the potential, the riches that were sure to come from this trading monopoly that the government of France had given him, you know, not just over the Americas, but over the uh, Asia, everywhere. I mean, he had a monopoly over French trade with the non-European world. And, you know, he, you know, printed articles and they, you know, they, it's just some funny stories, I, I think, or kind of not, maybe not ha-ha stories, but, uh, you know, about how they would, you know, release prisoners and put them on ships and say, you're free, but, you know, to your condition of getting out is we're going to ship you over to Louisiana and you're going to make your way, you know, start working over there. He was very successful in creating a very positive story around the opportunity and the riches that come out of the new world. You know, I'll leave any comparisons to uh, Tesla for someone else to make, but, uh, you know, that's not unique to us. It's not unique to investors and consumers and 17th century France, it's part of the human condition. And so, you know, John Law was very good at constructing and playing to that narrative in the same way that so many successful, certainly technology CEOs and management teams are successful at constructing it today. So Grant, I I don't I haven't seen the prospectus for the Mississippi Company, but I'm pretty sure that Louisiana is mainly swampland and didn't have the gold and silver and the 
natural resources that were advertised? Yeah, it's funny. Just you a know, hunch. Yeah, yeah, look, I mean, uh, I, I have nothing against the South. I love the South of America. And, and, you know, Louisiana is a very nice place. But, I mean, yes. if for anyone that hasn't been there, uh, it, it would be hard to describe it as a lush, verdant place full of gold and silver and precious metals. And, you know, it is, as Aaron says, there's, there's a lot of swamp land down in, in the South. But, you know, Ben makes the kind of uh, offhand comment about Elon Musk, but... Um, this is exactly how these things happen. You know, it, it's it's the guys who can construct a narrative that an audience or a public want to buy into because it offers a dream, it offers a chance for, you know, great gain, great wealth. And and again, it's a story as old as the hills. It really is. And, and by mid-1719, the Mississippi Company had already issued 600,000 shares. And the par value of the company, I guess you could say like the market cap, at the time was 300 million livres. So this was really like the first 10-bagger in history yeah. uh, as the stock price reached 5,000 livres in a matter of weeks. Yeah, this is an incredible return on investment for, for the people of France who were, quote-unquote, lucky enough to be allotted shares in the IPO. Now, the price eventually rose to 10,000 livres in the summer, uh, and this is where all over Paris, the first utterances of a brand-new word was being, were being heard, the word millionaire. Millionaire, yeah, exactly. And seeing these results, the Prince Regent anointed John Law in 1720 with the title of France's Controller General of Finances. So I guess this is the equivalent of uh, Chairman of the Fed these days? I I would think that's a fair comparison to make. Right. Uh, But shortly after his elevation to this vaunted position, something curious happened. Yeah, just as quickly as this whole scheme uh, rose to prominence, the cracks below the surface started to widen. And it began with people deciding that having made all this money uh, through their shares, they kind of wanted to convert those shares back into physical gold once again. If you look at why it failed, you know, the John Law, I don't think he was even able to conceive of the idea. Although France actually did try to outlaw, you know, like we have in this country in the past, you know, the private ownership of gold. But they still had that convertibility. They were still ultimately on a gold standard, and that's ultimately what made this system of belief that John Law wanted to implement and that we certainly have today, that's what made it fail back then. This is fascinating to me because we, we talk about this, uh, the gold standard is talked about as something that, that just shackles bankers and it's, it's too restrictive. All that was happening back here was people had the option, instead of owning paper, to own gold. And guess what? Once they've made their paper gains, we talk about cyclicality all the time, as we have done already in this uh, in this episode. Once again, cyclically, they said, you know what? This is great. I've made all this money. But, you know, I'd rather not keep it in paper. I would rather, you know, I'd rather have the gold. And you know what else is cyclical, uh, Grant, is that John Law's reaction to these redemptions, it would become the playbook for future central bankers uh, that came after him. He limited the use of gold by the public. Uh, he even offered to buy the Mississippi shares at a premium with freshly minted notes, which kind of doesn't make sense, right? Because it sets off this reflexive situation where more notes enter the system, which would in turn re- come back to the bank for redemption into gold. Eventually, the bank was forced to close for 10 days. Yeah, of course. It's, it's, a, it's a temporary close. Uh, but of course, once the bank closes, there's no access to the money. Um, now, this was supposed to buy law time, but, uh, but it did nothing of the sort. Um, as you said, Aaron, they're stuck in this feedback loop. They keep printing paper cash, um, but ultimately that, no, no amount of paper cash is going to substitute for physical gold. When people want something that matters, something that they feel is worth 
something, they always want gold. I mean, Lord tried to criminalize the selling of gold, uh, anything at this point, to try and stop the people converting. But there was just such a massive backlash from the people of Paris that they very quickly had to reverse that, uh, reverse that criminalization. Don't forget, this is a time when uh, leaders of countries, particularly France, would be separated from their heads uh, by angry crowds. So uh, it wasn't quite as easy back then. And of course, the inevitable happened. Right. And hyperinflation ensued. There was another proximate cause that I want to talk about, and, and that's kind of the political aspect of this. Because my strong view is that politics always trumps economics, right? You can have the most beautiful and elegant economic scheme in the world, but if it doesn't work for the political powers that be, then it's going to fail, right? So, so what, what ultimately really crippled this from a political perspective, my view, is that the food prices went up so dramatically, uh, in France and in Paris in particular. And if there's one thing even a pre-Marie Antoinette sovereign of France cares about, it's do the, <laughs> do the peasants, do the peasants have, uh, can they buy their food, right? Because that, that is what leads to impactful riots, shall we say, uh, and, uh, and, and a loss of legitimacy for any sovereign. So, so once food prices start to get out of control, the word went out to law you know, we gotta, we got to shut this down. we got to bring this down. And that's the problem when you've got any sort of meteoric rise or bubble. Once you pop the bubble, right, and I think cryptocurrencies could be an example of that today, once you pop the bubble, there's no there there, right? There's no fundamental bottom for this because none of this was being driven on some fundamental notion of what the asset actually yields. You know, Ben's point there about people being able to be fed uh, is that's what this all boils down to. You know, we saw this with the Arab Spring. It's the Achilles heel in China. When, when that kind of unrest and people can't feed their families, that kind of unrest spreads like a fern. It just goes everywhere really, really fast. And it's the biggest threat to, uh, at this point, a monarchy, um, later times uh, democracy. It's the, it's the single biggest threat. Right. And I guess like there, there it comes a certain point in your in your own like internal calculus of risk reward. It's like, you know what? I can either go and like work or I can riot and try and get like food. And that becomes skewed when, you know, something like food becomes 40% or 50% of your of your income. Well, and the prices are going up in in, you know, fiat or loosely fiat currency every day. And yeah, so John Law had to shut it down and things came to a, a screeching halt. Um, later on, John Law would have to flee for Italy and would die a pauper. Um, his name was disgraced. And what ensued in the decades afterwards was political and social turmoil in France. Fortunately, the French had yet to invent the guillotine at this point. But funnily enough, it, uh, it was invented fairly soon after this happened. And the French would start putting it to fairly frequent use. But, you know, this is the sort of destruction of the middle class that set the country into financial ruin and, and turmoil and ultimately creating a fertile ground for massive political upheaval. The, the French Revolution in 1789 and ultimately the rise of Napoleon in 1799. Yeah, all of these things uh, in a very turbulent period in France's history can be tied back to the very fateful decisions of one exiled Scottish gentleman who just happened to befriend the Prince Regent. And so you can see how bringing someone in from the outside uh, and just giving them carte blanche and, and so much sway over politics and political decisions at the time can create incredible problems for a country. 
The whole notion of domestic politics is that the rules of the game, the rules of the market, the rules of investing, the rules of what's allowed, whether it's gold ownership or you know, banking regulations, you know, Dodd-Frank or anything, the whole notion of what is allowed, what are the rules and how do they change is driven by your political leaders, period, full stop. Right? Now, your political leaders, your political leaders, even in France in the, you know, 1700s, they cared about food riots in Paris, Right? And this is still at the height of divine rights of kings, right? They cared about food riots in Paris. Well, it's the same with our leaders today. We can talk about international economic logic, and we can talk about, oh, how we want to have this free trade policy or this uh, globalization uh, immigration policy, because it does add to the general utility, the you know, bigger economic pie in, the, in, the, in like It does. It really does. But the, those goodies, that bigger economic pie and the like, may not be distributed equally. And if the losers in these sort of globalization policies are the equivalent of the Parisian bourgeoisie who now have to pay twice as much for their bread as they used to, well, that's going to be a political problem. And that will always create a political reaction where either through a political entrepreneur or through the existing political elites understanding that they're in trouble, that is what's going to drive policy, even if it's not as quote-unquote smart or as beneficial for all as the globalization policy might have been. So it's food rights in 1720, it's Trump rallies in Tallahassee and, you know, 2016. I got to tell you, man, it, it, again, history history doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme. You know, Grant, this concept of history not repeating but rhyming is so powerful because I think it, it's all about human nature. And it's not that we're doomed to make the same exact same mistakes, but it's the power of narrative to induce mass greed and fear that I find so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's ironic that that phrase has rhymed three times throughout this podcast you know Ben's Ben's used it I've used it you've used it and it's so true and it's a big part of what I think we're trying to do with the ventures in finance is is try and bring these stories to life and 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 it's a big part of why we study monetary and financial history because because they do happen over and over and over again um, but of course there's no point in analyzing history unless you actually sit down and think about what we can learn from it yeah, when I, when I say that the power of, of story and narrative isn't unique to 17th century France or, or us today or the like, I, I say that because it, it really is who we are as a, in, in terms of being the, the, the human animal. So humans are almost unique among mammalian species in the sense that they are true, in the true sense of the word, social animals. And there's, you know, this long characteristic of what it means to be a social animal, but it's really rare. And it's so rare that the four species for which it's most pronounced, humans, bees, ants, and termites, I would argue the four most successful species on the planet. And the real hallmark of what it means to be a social animal is that a social animal swims in a sea of communication. Now, for those insect species I mentioned, the sea they swim in is a 
literally, you know, a chemical ocean of pheromones that go through the air and they take in and that's how they communicate, right? For humans, it's words. And what I mean by we swim in the sea of communications and what I mean by the sense that this is biological as much as it is social is that we are literally evolved over tens of millions of years to respond to communications, verbal, you know, the words that we speak and that we read in exactly the same way that ants, bees, and termites are evolved to respond to, to, to pheromones. Now, look, it, it, it's not, you know, it, it, it's not some, I'm, I'm not rejecting free will or any of this stuff. I'm, I'm just pointing out that, that this is not an accident it, and, and in fact, I, I would also argue it's part and parcel of why we are such a successful species, that we, that we have this ability to motivate ourselves in vast groups and to organize our societies around the power of these stories and these communications. And so this idea of communication and narrative to drive massive human efforts and to influence herd mentality is littered across history, which is why we study it. And the story of John Law and the Mississippi scheme was just one of of those examples. But I think it's an important example because this narrative tool, which was once reserved just for politicians, has now shifted to other capable and no less impactful hands. Now, look, this is something that politicians have known for thousands of years. And they've been very successful, or that's the hallmark of a successful politician. Can you tell the story that motivates people? What's relatively new is that central bankers have gotten in on the act. So this is, is what they refer to as communication policy, is what they refer to as expanded forward guidance. But it's the whole notion that we are going to intentionally use our words, not to describe what we're actually thinking, but to try to impact your behavior, Mr. Investor. Right? So that the words are used intentionally to try to change another's behavior as opposed to a I'll call it a, a, a truthful rendition of what you're actually thinking or, or meaning. You know, what we might call lying under other circumstances, but this is how the, the social, the human social game has been played for eons, and, and now central bankers are catching up and catching up really well. Yeah, Ben's right. This, this game is older than leather, and this is, if this is how the game is played, it's so important for us to first understand and recognize that we are being played. This is happening to us. It's deliberately being imposed upon us to try and uh, make us bend a certain way to try and fit in and try and avoid these problems that, that John Law and, and Louis XV saw back in France 300 years ago. You know, at every level, whether it's investment banks or the mainstream me- media, this, this idea of, of the establishment, um, you know, they will use their ability to, to shape this narrative uh, to influence social uh, public behavior to their advantage and, and to the advantage of their constituents. Every firm on the street recognizes this is now how the game is played and how effective this is. The business model of the street on its research is to drive trading volume. And how you drive trading volume, you create a story around that stock. Right? So it's, it's everywhere today. It's, it's with the... Uh, you know, why did Jeff Bezos buy the Washington Post? Because he wanted to have the ability to construct and impact the stories that, that you know, influence us. Um, you know, why is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg going on his listening tour of America? 
right, in, you know, preparation for some political career. It's because he recognizes how important owning one of these media platforms like Facebook can be for how society is organized. See, Grant, I told you it all come back to Mark Zuckerberg. You did indeed. It's funny how, how <laughs> we are 300 years later talking about these stories. And hey, with twice the same podcast, we have uh, the leader of Facebook. That's right. But, and, but you know, since we're on Facebook, I, I think as much as the internet has expanded uh, the established power's reach and ability to influence narrative, the internet has also served as sort of this great equalizer, I would say, um, and allows independent analysts, writers, journalists to to merge and, and in theory and in practice to reach just as many people as the incumbent narrative shifters, I guess, in very yeah, commas. Like, I think you're right, Aaron, but the, the, the only problem is, obviously, you have to seek that stuff out. You have to go and look for these people and you have to be of a mind which is curious enough to want to find out more because we have mainstream news services pumped into us from whether it be newspapers like the Washington Post, as, as Ben points out, or CNN or Fox and MSNBC. Or whatever shows up on your news feed on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, and you, you can select where you get your news from, but if you're only selecting it from amongst the mainstream media, you don't allow guys like Ben Hunt into your world to, to bring their perspective on this. Um, it, it's It really doesn't change anything. This, this narrative landscape has been flattened in some ways um, and, and we have afforded opportunities uh, for these rapid shifts to occur elsewhere, but that's not the only, the only story in town. Absolutely not. And, and Ben, I think his perspective on narrative, politics and, and game theory are all crucial to understand as we think about how narratives drive society and the collective actions that we take. And I don't think anyone covers this better than Ben uh, as far as how they relate to markets. If you're interested in reading more about this, it's the... Uh, it's called Epsilon Theory, right? And it's at EpsilonTheory.com. We've got a, a number of contributors now, and I try to write a piece, uh, you know, every couple of weeks. Uh, there's a library of content there now, and it really is trying to look at the world, the investing world in particular, through these lenses of game theory, you know, what we've been talking about, about playing the player, as well as the lens of history. And, um, you know, it's, it's particularly in this overly uh, scientificized world, this world where everyone's trying to play us. I think just uh, any sort of content we can have to kind of bring us back and see, oh, this has happened before, or just to, to, to arm us against believing in our heart of hearts, the stories that are being woven for us, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. You know, Grant, I remember when we first, uh, when we were on our call with Dr. Hunt, uh, you said one thing in response to what he said, and it was that, you know what, like reading Epsilon Theory is the only time where I come away feeling smarter and also dumber at the same time. And uh, yeah, just being able to spend some time with Dr. Hunt and to hear his perspective. I don't know of anyone else who really incorporates and integrates politics with markets the same way that he does. No, nobody does what Ben does. And, and you know, we'll, we'll do it again. It's, uh, it's, it's worthy of a second plug. Anybody listening to this that doesn't subscribe to Epsilon Theory, you know, it's a free it's a free site. Um, there's so much information on there. And, and Ben is just such an incredible communicator. I, I just can't recommend that highly enough. It's something I subscribe to and read every chance I can. And for those of you out there listening who would like to read the report I wrote about John Law and the Mississippi scheme, then please email us and we will send a copy of the report to you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Grant. Well, moving on to our final segment called Things I Got Wrong. We speak with a market expert about a mistake they made, and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom that they derive from that experience. So hopefully our listeners can avoid those same mistakes. 
And this week, I had the chance to speak with Michael Schneider about what he got wrong assessing the bond market in 2008 and 2009. All right, this week, I am pleased to be speaking with Michael Schneider, who is the former chief investment officer and co-founder of Bookline Partners and current independent portfolio manager uh, based in Melbourne, Australia. Michael, it's great to finally get to speak to you. Likewise, Aaron. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of an investing mistake you made, as with the namesake of this segment, um, for the listeners who don't know you or haven't seen your excellent interviews on Real Vision TV, uh, discussing topics as you know, wide-ranging as global notional derivatives exposure, uh, Australian housing market, and debt psychology, uh, can you give us a run-through of your background, what you do, and the lens through which you look at markets? Uh, the lens I look through is very much a thematic, um, I, I guess I would almost call economic history lens. Um, Whilst you know, I, I do agree that not much um, in the way of crises or cycles are identical to other cycles. I tend to look at uh, you know underlying themes, underlying macro issues, and really, I suppose as a bond manager, always seeking to test the marketplace to its vulnerability to um, adverse events, and so. Uh, that's the kind of context that I, I tend to look through. I've been in the um, bond market for the best part of uh, 25, 28 years, I think, from memory. And so very much I, as, as an importer of capital, I've always had the view that Australia is um, is, an, is one of the biggest pound-for-pound importers of capital in the world. So I always seek to understand what's going on in the other 98% of the global economy. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and just um, a side question. You said you've, you've been in the bond market for 28 years now. What, what uh, got you first interested into finance and in particular got into fixed income? The thing I, I always said about the bond market that really appealed to me when I was first introduced to it was that I can calculate fairly precisely um, the price of me being wrong. And so I, I felt that that was a lot easier to quantify in the bond market than it is in the equity market. Um, and it's it, Bill Fleckenstein said to, said to me many years ago that being a bond manager is almost the same as being a short seller where you're looking at a, 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 a fairly low return, but there's a lot of capital at stake. Well, Michael, why don't we move on to the, the main question here, which is, you know, can you tell us about a time you got something wrong and can you share that lesson you learned from that experience? Well, there's a couple of lessons I, I got wrong. The, the first lesson uh, or the first thing I got wrong was on the very first day I started in financial markets on the trading floor. And that was I received an order to buy a very large amount of resource stock in Australia and um, I decided to sell it instead of buying it. Uh, I'm pleased to say I haven't made that mistake since, but it was pretty scary on the day that I got it the wrong way around. So attention to detail was something that I, I very, uh, very much took away from that. Um, fast forward perhaps to 2009. Um, the thing that I, I, I suppose the biggest lesson that I learned in my career was we were very much prepared and quarantined against the uh, global financial crisis in 2008. Uh, to me, it was a scenario leading into the Bear Stearns hedge funds in 2007, then the Meredith Whitney, uh, you know, kind of viewpoints on the major Wall Street banks in 2008. I had this view at the time that we were going to see a classic uh credit bubble, which we did, a classic credit bursting or bursting of that credit bubble, and then typically, as you would see, uh, a series of fire sales of assets. And at the time, I looked at the amount of debt that was in the system, the amount of funding that would need to be 
uh, implemented by, you know, certainly the US government and uh, to a lesser extent everywhere else in the world, given that it was a, a highly concentrated problem on Wall Street or at least a, a highly concentrated credit problem on Wall Street. And what kind of surprised me at the time was how the bond market behaved in the face of clearly um, unprecedented, you know, series of, 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 of uh, issuance required in the bond market, of, of deficit funding uh, through the uh, through the US economy. And it kind of befuddled me at the time to see that bond yields actually decline. Now, clearly, uh, the Federal Reserve was in the early phases of adopting a zero interest rate policy, which dragged the bond market down or bond yields down with it. But it took me longer with hindsight than it should have taken me to, to realise that with the role of the Federal Reserve in funding uh, or at least vendor financing this massive cycle of debt that was coming down the pipe, that the price of bonds wasn't going to be anywhere near as adversely affected as I perhaps initially thought. And it took me took me most of 2009 to to understand that we had a, a, a almost a case of suspended animation in bond prices and uh, and, and a, a trend that was very much driven by a, a determination that I underestimated in in you know certainly within the federal the Federal Reserve and within the U.S. Treasury. Now, Michael, I want to uh, break down that um, adverse effect or the, the adverse effect that you expected for bond prices. I want to break that down a little bit because um, when you think about a cre- some kind of you know a credit explosion or a credit unwinding, um, and then you think about what the Fed did with QE and lowering interest rates, I, I guess on the one hand, you could see how much bond issuances would have to, as you mentioned, how, how many, much bond insu- issuances would have to go towards deficit funding. But on the other hand, wouldn't you also have just a mass of, you know, safety capital rushing into what is in theory the riskless asset in the world? So how, how did you like reconcile or balance those two things as that was an, uh, unfolding? It's a really good question. Um, the way I looked at it, at the time, the stock market had pretty much halved in the US. I think the S&P got down to 666 from memory. And to me, it wasn't a matter of an either-or scenario. I I felt that given asset prices were greatly inflated across all markets, whether it be credit, whether it be high yield, whether it be equities, I felt that there was going to be a markdown of asset valuations. So when the stock market indexes halve, uh, there isn't that same amount of collateral that is sloshing around the system. It's just that the, there's been a massive devaluation in, in certain asset prices. The same thing happened in, you know, obviously subprime. Same thing happened in high yield debt markets. So, the the size of the the balance sheet, if you will, which you kind of touched on before, the size of the balance sheet had actually shrunk on a mark to market basis. So I didn't look at. I look. I, at least I tried to look through that, and and to say, well, um, we don't have the same. $100 worth of notional capital, that $100 is now $50. So you don't get that, you know, kind of um, uh, recycling of, 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 of the same amount of capital. Gotcha. Um, and just to, you know, if we bring into present day, I mean, we've seen, we hear about the stock market bubble, we hear about the everything bubble, I think Jesse Felder called it. Um, you know, I was looking at uh, inflows into bond ETFs versus stock ETFs since 2007, and the inflows into bond ETFs have just skyrocketed um, to, the, to, to the sky, literally. Uh, meanwhile, equity ETFs have kind of, you know, middled or almost like fallen uh, during that same period of time. Um, how do you, I mean, going forward, 
where do you think that behavior is? And, and, and when it does change, what do you think might tell you that, you know, the situation is different or, you know, there's going to be a counterintuitive response uh, from the bond market, just like what you experienced in 2009? Um, how do you see that going forward? Well, that's another good question. I, I think the, the reason it took me so long to figure out, or at least longer than what I wanted to figure out what was happening and why uh, this vendor financing of, of asset markets or debt markets, I should say, was uh, was of the magnitude it was, is because I eventually realised that the Fed is just all in and if if they have to, they'll go down with the anchor. And so... It was it was an incredibly, uh, I suppose, an incredibly powerful insight to me to say that, that, that they've, they've basically bet everything on black. In terms of your question on going forward, well, nothing's really changed in my view other than, as you touched on, it's an everything bubble now. Back then it was uh, quite a concentrated asset, uh, asset boom or asset market boom. Now it's just an everything boom, and I think that's entirely correct in, in terms of thinking that way. So that all-in bet, in my view, has actually compounded in the years since 2009, and it just gets scarier by the month. And so in answer to your question, you know, again, I touched on it before, the vulnerability to adverse events is, is greater now than what it was in 2008, and I can't even believe I'm actually saying that because I didn't think it could have got any worse in 2008 than what it did, but it has. Yeah, it is, um, it is scary, and, and we're going to see how it unwinds. But, so Michael, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this segment, but for our listeners who want to get in touch with you uh, or find out more about what you do, uh, how, can, how can they do that? Well, probably the easiest way to do it, Aaron, is, is through Real Vision. Um, I'm very close to Real Vision, and um, I have nothing but admiration for what you're doing. So um, that's probably the easiest way. I'm pretty familiar to you guys, I think. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, so for any of the listeners who, who have any questions for Michael, just feel free to email us at uh, podcast at realvision.com and uh, we'll forward those questions to, on to Michael. So Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. You know, Grant, we've actually been chasing uh, Michael Schneider for, I think, four months to try and get him onto the program. Uh, and it's tough, especially with, uh, with people who are on the other side of, of, the, uh, of the, the time zone chart. But it was great to, to finally you know, speak with someone and to hear his perspective on, on the bond market in 2008, 2009, because, I mean, any rational person, it sounds like at that time, would have been like, yeah, you know what, like, we're going to have this, we have an explosion of this credit bubble, and we're going to have a giant write down in, across all assets. So it was just interesting to get his take on how essentially the, the bond market was in some kind of like limbo until it decided that, you know what, yields are actually going to go down and, and bond prices are going to go up. Yeah, Michael, Michael's a really, really astute observer of that bond market. Um, uh, for, for many, many years. And it's funny, you know, that's one thing that I've found in common with all these guys. You know, Simon Mikhailovich is another guy who was in the distressed credit markets. Um, and the thing that caught everybody by surprise was not just the strength of the reaction from the, uh, from the governments and central banks or, or, or the extents that they were prepared to go to to try and paper over this, but the ease with which the bond market kind of said, yeah, okay, all right, we'll, we'll let you have this. We're going to ride this tailwind we'll 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 join sides with you and we'll let you do what you're going to do um the problem as always comes when the bond market sees that the ride is over and it's time to take the other side of the trade and that's that's how this denouement comes about to me is when the bond market turns around eventually and uh, you know you have to think we're getting closer to that than we are at the beginning and says 
No mess. You know, we. Where, where are these bond? I mean, it sounds like you're talking about the bond vigilantes a little bit. Where they've been? They've been yeah, absent look, for. Look, I, I've spoken about this more times than I care to remember. That you know, the bond vigilantes. I keep saying they are. They are not a not-for-profit organization, right? They are interested in making money, and for the last seven, eight years. The easiest money to be made for them has been taking the same side of the trade as the central banks and governments. But there will come a time, uh, which is why this whole idea of confidence in central banks is so important. There will come a time when they see a chink in the armor. And just like 92, when you know, we've spoken about this before, when, when markets punched the British Chancellor square in the face and forced him out of the ERM 24 hours after he said he wouldn't do it, that day will come. Um, and... Uh, it's 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 closer every day, I suspect. Well, unfortunately, it's come to the time where we have to conclude this episode. But before we do, just a quick legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and trade responsibly. Yes, indeed. Wise words. Next week, we will be back with our usual long short and things I got wrong segments. And for a future segment, it will be a commentary feature where we revisit an interview we did with D. Smith at Le Club Bay. And Grant and Rao will dive deeper into his framework and understanding of the hyperconnectivity of the world and expound upon the risks that comes with that. It's a fascinating interview um, on geopolitics, and it's not one to be missed. In the meantime, though, if you have an interesting question for us about this week's show or anything else for that matter, we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Yeah, they're still... I haven't figured it out yet, sorry. That's still baffling me too, but please do leave those reviews. If you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research, publications, and podcast episodes, then please do follow us on Twitter, at Real Vision. You can also find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. And you can follow me on Twitter, at TTMYGH. You can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us. We will see you back here next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com